Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Good morning. I'm Susie. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you, Fran, for all that you do for those 6,000 kids in foster care. Um, You know, we're not all called to become foster parents, but there is something that each of us can do to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and this is like such an easy thing that we get to partner with. And when we think about one of our core values as a church being hospitality, to be able to send something that will welcome a child into an unfamiliar space, I think has a much deeper impact than any of us could ever imagine. So thank you in advance for participating in that. Thank you for giving because your giving goes towards supporting Tennessee Alliance for Kids and the work that they're doing. So um, anyway, got a little choked up. Always gets me. (laughs) Um, We're in the middle of a series. It's a great series. It's called Unbound. And this is like, it's not really a one-off. Maybe we'll call it a B-side. I'm not sure. You'll have to decide at the end. Um, We've gotten a lot of information about really good information and new ways of thinking about how we approach the Bible, what it is and what it isn't. And we've unpacked a lot of things about what the Bible is. And so just for clarity, like we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it's authoritative, it's inspired, and it's this divine partnership of of God in his divine and human beings that he chose to tell his story through. So as we've been discussing it, we've been talking about things like the importance of reading the Bible and approaching the Bible in its original context, acknowledging where it was given, where the stories were formed, the cultures, the languages, the things going on in history during that time. We've talked about inspiration, um, and we've talked about this idea of accommodation, where God adjusts so that um, he can bring his people from the brokenness of this world back to the ideal of what he's created. We see that ideal in Genesis 1 and 2, and we see it again in Revelation 21 and 22. And then if you really read through scripture, you notice that everything in between those bookends is triage. It's the grittiness of life. It's broken families, broken relationships, messed up politics, religion, all the things that we all experience at some point in time. Their stories of hope, their stories of victory, their stories of longing, of tragedy, all kinds of things that we can find ourselves in. Now, we acknowledged how God tells his story through human beings, through a certain time and a certain place in a specific language and culture, but he's told it for people in a way that transcends culture, space, language, and all of those things. For me to really understand this, it has really begun to open my eyes to how much bigger God is than I estimate him to be. And also, it makes me realize how beautiful Jesus is when we read the whole story through the scope of his life. So if you've missed a couple weeks, I want to encourage you to go back and listen. We're going to practice some of the things that we've learned in our time together this morning. 
Um, if you have further questions, there's a really great class that Kevin's going to teach on September 20th. If you're new to the Bible or if you're deciding to re-engage into the Bible and you want to approach it differently, Kevin's going to be teaching a class on how to study the Bible, how to read it, how to use commentaries, like all of those really great tools that we have available to us. Um, so sign up for that. You can see that on the, on, um, the website. And then also, this is just a really simple suggestion. If you're someone who's new to the Bible, and if you're someone who has struggled with the Bible, and your relationship with it might be tenuous, um, I had somebody ask me recently, they were telling me that they wanted to just, in his words, he's like, I just want to read the Bible for myself and see what I really think. And I'm like, that is such a great idea. And if that resonates with you at all, this is a simple suggestion to just start in the gospel. Start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, any one of those. But when you read it, read it as though you're getting to know a person, not that you're trying to prove that something is true or not true or what you think about something. Just read it as though you're getting to know this person named Jesus. And then when you read the rest of the Bible, then you read the rest of the Bible in light of who this person is. Because what the Bible says about Jesus through these firsthand accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the radiance of his glory, and that he's the exact imprint of his nature, and all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So when we read the Bible because we want to get to know God, we want to know who God is and what he's like, we see it lived out through the person of Jesus. So last week, the conversation was really around context and understanding reading the Bible through the value of reading the Bible in its original context, understanding where it was written, how it was written. Today, we're going to practice some of that with this passage that I picked. And the passage might be familiar to a lot of you in this room. It's, it's known as the woman caught in adultery. I, the reason why I picked this passage was because it's a bit controversial, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes, but I think that this is a really easy passage for us to make about us. Um, whether, we, whether or not um, infidelity or, or sexual betrayal has affected our lives, we tend to take passages like this and find ourselves in the story in such a way that we make it about us. And then this particular story, at face value, we see that it's about Jesus and his grace. But if we go a little bit deeper, we not only understand that Jesus is God full of grace, but how he exemplifies that grace and how he meets us in our shame with that grace. And so that's what I'm hoping that you're going to get out of our time today. Um, I've done a little bit of the homework for us, you know, because that's what we do. But I'm going to read the passage, give you some information, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll read it again and see how it resonates with us and how we can respond to it. So the setup for the story is that it's during this time called the Festival of Booths, sometimes known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this is a really important Jewish festival. It's when the Jewish people, and they still practice it today, they commemorate when um, God was with them through the wilderness years and how he protected them, how he shielded them, how he provided for them. And at this particular point in the story in John, Jesus comes into the festival about halfway through, and he goes to the temple courts and begins to teach. 
And what's swirling all around him is that all the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the chief priests, they're all looking for a way to arrest him. They're feeling threatened by him. They're super agitated. And there's all kinds of division over who he actually is. Some people think he's the Messiah. Some people think he's a prophet. And some people think that he's just this deranged, demon-possessed man. But he is the center focus of a lot of people's angst. And so we find him in the temple courts teaching. And when we pick up our story in John 7, verse 53, it's the end of the first day of him teaching. And it says, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is where we usually find Jesus going off to pray. And then it says at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses con commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this to question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So, last week, Mike uh, gave us a framework for entering into the text and acknowledging the context of the text and what we, how we approach the text. And there are three ways that we do that. We situate ourselves before the text asking, who am I? What am I bringing to the text? Then we situate the original audience of the text, and we ask, who were they? Who was this written to, and what were they like? And then we situate the text, like what kind of a text is it? What, kind, what genre is it? Because the Bible is made up of 66 books that are all different types of genres. Some are letters, some are poems, some are wisdom books, and these are firsthand accounts that we call the Gospels. So the first thing we want to do is situate ourselves before the text. And Mike gave us three things that are basically true for most of us here living in America. The first thing is, is that we approach the text with individualism in mind. We live in a very individualistic society where we tend to make everything about what's in it for us. How does it serve us? What am I to do? And that's often how we approach the Bible. Like, we open it up and say, like, what does this have for me today? What am I supposed to do with it? What does it mean to me? And how does it apply to me? And there's room a little bit for all of that, but there's so much more. Because God doesn't just stop with us as individuals. And we'll get to that in a minute, too. The other thing is that we look at it through interpretive narcissism. We do make it all about us. With texts like this one, especially, it's so easy to make this about us. 
Um, we also look at it from a very centered and affluent and safe perspective because we live in the United States of America. We are a very affluent nation. And for the most part, we are the majority um, of the world in terms of our, our ethnic makeup, I guess, and that we're basically safe where we live, right? Like we don't walk out of church wondering if someone's going to kill us for our faith. We're not like stepping on landmines when we're walking home or anything like that. Basically, we are centered, affluent, and safe. Now, when we're looking at a specific text like this one, I think it's really helpful in order to like move the individualism aside it is really helpful to acknowledge the bias that we bring to the text. What is it that I bring to this particular text? So for me, in addition to these three things, I also bring my gender to the text. I can't help but to relate to the woman in the story. I also bring my ethnicity to the text because I happen to be from the Middle East, so immediately everything that rises up in me is shame, right? Uh, I'm Iranian, and I heard an Iranian pastor say one time that Iranians live in a shame-based culture as opposed to a grace-based culture. I grew up in a home where, like, my grandpa would say to me all the time, shame on you if I did something, whether it was funny or serious. Shame on you was, like, an appropriate thing to say to me at the time. Um, and also, it, it affects my worldview, right? Because I wasn't born in this country. I, I didn't live in this country during some of my formative years. So my worldview may be coming into play when I look at this text. So it's, it's not a bad thing to acknowledge those things, but it's good to just like put that out on the table and be able to say, okay, this is what it's saying. This is what I come with. And this is how I mine for the truth of who God is in the midst of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, by the way, the text number is up there, but there's no one to run the text line here because it's, well, you don't have the thing on your phone, and it's too much. I'll just start asking questions. You can ask questions, <laughs> totally. If you have a question, you can feel free to just raise your hand and ask a question, and we'll get to it. But if you want to text in a question, we'll, we'll get to it during the week as well. So please feel free to do that. Okay, so the second thing that we do is we... Um, we, we, we contrast it with, with the audience, like who is the audience of the text? Now, last week, we, we, we learned that the whole Bible, pretty much, what, all that it was written to was written to people who were of low status, people who were on the margins, mostly persecuted. They met in house churches and mixed social orders, and, and the majority of the people were illiterate. So they didn't read the Bible in sections. They didn't have chapter and verse. If it was a letter they received, someone would read the whole letter all at once, and they would hear it in a communal setting. There was no, like, having a quiet time with my Bible and a journal and prayer by myself. It was all set in community. It was heard in community. It was, it was understood in community. It was wrestled with in community. This particular text adds some things to that as well. The book of John is thought to have been written by the Apostle John. He was the, a son of Zebedee. He was a Palestinian Jew and a member of Jesus' inner circle. And it was written to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles of, of diverse religious and ethnic backgrounds. And the specific population is this diverse community that could be found in Ephesus and beyond. Then we situate what kind of a text it is. Okay? So this is what 
what kind of creates the distance between us and the text. We acknowledge that we are separated by this text with time, culture, language, custom, geography, value systems, and symbolic universe. There's so much that goes into the writing of this that we don't understand because we weren't there living in that time. This particular text, though, when we situate it and look at what kind of text it is, we acknowledge that this is actually a first-hand account from somebody who was with Jesus during his years of ministry. And then we can also look at the whole book of John, and we can find in, at the end of it, in chapter 20, where he actually states his specific reason for writing the book was, he says, in, uh, I think it's in verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book, because the whole book he talks about signs and wonders and conversations and all these really intimate moments that people had with Jesus. And he's saying there was, there was so much more that wasn't recorded in the book, but these things are written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Another thing that was going on during the time that this was written was the people who followed Jesus, the Johannine community, the people who were led by John, they were actually thrown out of the synagogue. So there was already a lot of division happening between the Jews who were following Jesus and the Jews that weren't. And so he's writing this to encourage them and to encourage their faith and also to draw other people into recognizing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So I wanted to teach on this particular passage because there's a lot of controversy over it. Not just in terms of the content, content but there's a lot of controversy over whether it's actually authentic. Um, if John actually wrote it, or even if it belongs in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, if you, and if you don't have one now, go home and look at it, and you'll notice that this particular text is bracketed. There's two brackets on each end of it. And there's often a note found in your Bible that says something along the lines of this. It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, John John 21, Luke 21, or Luke 24, and some will say that it wasn't in there at all. Those who have been in favor of its inclusion often will explain its omission in the early church as an attempt by an overzealous church to prevent misunderstandings. Like, we wouldn't want people to think that Jesus forgives uh, adulterous women. Like, that would give them license and it would embolden them to commit adultery. That might have been the fear. One commentary says that church leaders deem the passage morally dangerous. Since Jesus forgives the women, wives might think that they could commit adultery and get away with it. So the church leaders tampered with the word of God and removed the passage. To leave the passage in, they, they reasoned, would be to make Jesus seem soft on adultery. Later, scribes, this is really important, following the lead of the Holy Spirit, reinserted the text, which should never have been removed in the first place. So in case you haven't noticed, I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd. And <laughs> If you didn't know, you're going to really know now. So 
If you recall, in week one, we talked about inspiration and about where the text came from and how we actually don't have what's known as the original autographs. So when someone says the Bible is perfect, infallible, inerrant, whatever N-word you want to use in its original context, we don't have the original autographs. But what we do have are all these manuscripts and ancient documents that are known as manuscripts that have allowed us to virtually recreate the autographs. So certain manuscripts place this story in, in different places, but 95.9% of the Greek manuscripts place it right here in this spot that is in the Bible that you have in your hands. So at some point, we have to trust and we have to have faith that this is the Bible that God wanted us to have and that there's something in all of its pages for us to learn about who he is. Most likely, this story had been floating around via oral tradition, and it was thought to have been widely accepted as truth. So somewhere along the way, a decision was made to include it. That didn't happen until the third century. So before the third century, the story was like tossed around like an old piece of furniture. But in the third century, they decided to include it. But the scholarship consensus is that John probably didn't write it himself, but someone in his community, because remember, the Bible was written in community, someone in the Johannine community um, wrote it, and they favor the inclusion because of the sheer number of manuscripts that have it. Also, it's very consistent with the rest of the book of John and John's storytelling that shows us who the Messiah is. There's all kinds of different stories like this where Jesus gets into the messy of life with people and he reveals himself to the people who want to follow him and he embodies the fullness of God in the flesh through these stories. So we can accept this narrative as true to Jesus because it is consistent with the other narratives that show us who Jesus is and what God is like. Okay, so we've practiced. We've practiced a little bit of engagement, yeah? Okay, so my heartbeat is spiritual formation. And I read a book, it's out on the table a, long, a, a while ago. It's called um, Shaped by the Word by a guy named Robert Mulholland. And in it, he makes the point that the reason why we read the Bible is for formation, not information. And in our culture, we're pretty trapped by information. We want to get all the information, and we look at it. We want to get it all right, and we're sometimes. And it's good. It's important to 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 really take it seriously and to study it and try to interpret it well. But sometimes we can become so consumed with whether it's right, whatever that means, that we don't allow it to shape us, and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to use it to breathe life into us and to transform us. So what Robert Mulholland says is that um, it's three things, that we read the Bible for formationally rather than informationally, and that we place ourselves in the text and allow it to shape us, and then we focus on being and becoming rather than doing. So there's a difference between making a text about us, which is individualism and narcissism, and finding ourselves in the story 
We acknowledge that we find ourselves in the story because these are stories about real people and we can relate to them. So we acknowledge that we can find ourselves in the story, but we don't stop there. We let the text shape us, we let the story shape us, and then we find God through the story. So with this particular text, it's easy to find myself in the story. I relate to this woman's shame, like, immediately. I relate to how she's feeling, what it must have been like to be humiliated in front of all those people, not to mention being caught in the act of doing something like that. But I... It, my tendency would have been to just stop there, relate to her, and absorb the balm of Jesus's comfort and grace without seeing the magnificence of who he is through his comfort and grace and how that permeates through every other part of life. So when we talk about spiritual formation, we often do the same thing that we do when we talk about the Bible. We make it about us and, and about how God is changing me, and we forget that spiritual formation is actually being formed in the image of God for the sake of others. So I want to encourage us all as a community, as we engage and re-engage in the Bible, to ask the questions, not just how is this shaping me, but what does this have to say to my community? What does this have to say to me, not as an individual who identifies with Christ, but as part of a, a body that identifies with Christ? And what does that mean for us as Journey Church? What does that mean for us as the American church? And how does that fit with the global church? Because if it's true for me and it's true for you, it has to be true for the widow that's in Haiti. And it has to be true for the foster kid in Davidson County. And it has to be true for the women that are still living in highly patriarchal communities in other parts of the world. So I wanna give us permission to imagine ourselves in the story not for the sake of ourselves only, but also for the sake of others. So imagine yourself in the story. What do you identify with? Do we identify with the woman, her accusers, the crowd that can't help but to gather and see what happens next? Do we tend to be people who are often on the outside looking in but not fully participating and we can also pay attention to how we feel when we listen to the words of this passage or when we read the passage. How does it make us feel? Does it trigger anything in us? Because God may be wanting to speak to us in that pain. I mean, maybe we come from a background that includes trauma and sexual betrayal. Maybe that's been part of our story that's shaped us. Maybe we can relate to, we can't re relate necessarily to the actual transgression that happened, but we can relate to the shame that she must have felt. Maybe somewhere in our stories, we were accused of something or found out about something that we did or didn't do. And we acknowledge where we can relate to the story, but we don't stay there. We find God in there, and we look for what he might be revealing about himself through the text. We look for the ways that Jesus is at work, how he embodies the grace of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, how he's at work fulfilling all things and restoring all things and gathering us unto himself, and how he's inviting us to participate with him. When we find ourselves in the story, we lean in further by asking the question, how is God shaping us for the sake of others? 
And how do we as a people reflect who he is? How do we reflect the grace of God? How are we as a community known and marked by the grace of God and the kindness of God? So, back to the story. Here's what we know so far. Jesus, teaching in the temple courts and the festival of booths. The chief priests and the Pharisees, at this point, they're looking for a way to arrest him. And it even says in the text that they were looking for a way to trap him. They want to have him killed. There's so much, there's so much division over who he is. And they set this trap to discredit him. And unfortunately, this woman ends up being a pawn in their scheme. The plan is to bring the woman caught in the act of adultery to you and use her to discredit him. And what they're banking on are the adultery codes in the Torah. And those can be found in uh, Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20, verse 10. We have that one here. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. The law requires that both participants in this infraction are held accountable. And Deuteronomy 19 also says that you need two or more witnesses to convict anyone accused of any crime that they may have committed. What do you notice about our story? Where's the dude? <laughs> in our story, only she's there and the accused partner is nowhere to be found. And so when we look at the world of the text, the context in which this was written, this is a highly patriarchal culture to the extent that women were marginalized, they were seen as people's property, they didn't have agency of their own, and in this case, the law, contrary to its original attempt, intent to protect women, to protect all people, was used and twisted to frame Jesus and dispose of this woman in the wake of that. The scribes and the Pharisees assert that she was caught in the act. And since such an assertion had to be based on two or more witnesses, it's possible, it's reasonable to assume that the trap was definitely prepared for her. We don't know by whom. It's highly possible it could have been her husband, her own husband, the person she was with, but something is afoot. Something is afoot. Now Jesus, through our human eyes, when we take it at face value, when we look at it, Jesus is, in our human eyes is faced with a real dilemma. If he had gone along with their plans to lynch her, he would have either faced um, a charge with the Roman authorities because the Roman authorities didn't have the death penalty for such an infraction. And if he, sa if he said, don't stone her, he would have been going against Torah, against the law of God. So he can't have it both ways. Not to mention, all this talk about compassion and the weak and the lowly, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will get, give you rest, that all goes out the window, right? And if he lets her go, then what kind of a teacher is he? Because then he's picking and choosing which laws to follow. Another big problem for Jesus is that in Matthew 5, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. So let's, let's read it again. Let's read this section again and consider how Jesus handles this and what it looks like for Jesus and how we can learn how to be more like him. 
Beginning in verse 6, it says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to walk away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So rather than answering the mob immediately, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. And we have no idea what it was that he was actually writing. It doesn't say. None of the manuscripts say. But there's all kinds of speculation as to what it could be. But whatever it was, whatever he was writing, whatever the movement was, whatever cadence he had in this whole conversation, it leads to him taking the accuser's focus, the crowd's focus, off of this woman and onto himself. He becomes the focal point of the story now. Not her, not anything that she did, but him, who he is, the power that he has, and the spirit that's with him. Imagine what it would have been like to be her. You might not identify with the specifics of her story, but she's like so many of us when we've had to come to terms with who we are or what we've done or what's been done to us, we can identify with her shame. All of us have this tendency, some of us more than others, towards shame. And shame threatens our identity. It tries to take over our identity away from who we are in Christ into who we are because of something that we did. Shame comes to us through many different avenues. And the biggest lie shame tells us is that we're not worthy. It lies when it says we're not worthy of being loved. It lies when it says that we can't truly be forgiven. It lies when, we says that it, when it says that we can't fully be restored. Shame lies when it tells us that we're not worthy of being known. It lies when it tells us that if people knew who I actually am and what I've actually done, I would not be loved. You would not want me here. That is the lie that shame tells us that we would not be accepted. It goes after our identity. Shame is a liar. And so I want to ask you right now, what voice do you hear louder? Do you hear the voice of shame that tells you all those lies? Or do you hear the voice of Jesus that tells you that you're loved, that you're accepted, that you're worthy, that you're valuable, that your feelings matter, that you matter, that you're not identified by what you've done or where you've been, but your identity is found in him and that he's carried that shame for you. He's taken that focus off of that shame and put it on himself and he wants you to believe him and walk in that. I love what David writes in the Psalms, in Psalm 34, when he was hiding. He, there's this line that's always been so meaningful to me. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. When every last one of them leaves the scene, she's left alone with Jesus, and her attention is now released from those who are accusing her, 
and from the crowds that are staring at her, and all she has left is to look at Jesus. And he draws her eyes onto him, and he sets her free. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of those accusers. And maybe, maybe that's where you find yourself in the story. I find myself in that part of the story often too, because what they were doing was elevating her sin above all of theirs. And once they realized, based on whatever it was he was writing in the ground, the mystery of his presence there, whatever it was, they realized that they too were in need of God's grace. And they too were um, guilty of something, and whether it's to hold on to power or alleviate whatever fear we might have about who we are, about where we stand, about our position in life, or whether we're just okay, we're all so quick to judge other people's sin as worse than ours so that we can feel more comforted. I do that all the time. And they elevated her adultery as worse than any of their, their own. And then their own self-righteousness and superiority and judgment, they condemned her and they expected Jesus to do the same. The only one there without sin was Jesus. And when he was left with her, he doesn't throw a stone, but he sets her free. He's God in human form. He had every right to sit in judgment of her. He embodies the holiness and the justice of God. And yet, he doesn't throw a stone at her. He straightens back up and he tells her straight up that he doesn't condemn her. On the other hand, he doesn't not talk about her sin either. I mean, he, tell, he calls it what it is, whether it was that, that was, whether that thing was done to her or whether she was a willing participant, we don't know. But there was some sin in her life that caused him to say, go and leave your life of sin. He invites her into a better way of living, to reevaluate her life and to walk away in the grace and kindness of God. Go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, this is so consistent with what John also says that God sent his only son not to condemn the world, but because he loves the world, right? So it also summarizes what Paul must have meant when he was thinking about Jesus when he, when he wrote in Romans. He says, it's kindness that leads to repentance. The message paraphrases it this way. He says, God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. So on the one hand, he, he wasn't condemning her, but he wasn't exactly being soft either. He called, he called her into a new way of living by not ignoring what was actually true. The woman caught in adultery and the woman at the well are two of my favorite stories in the Bible, and they're both so magnificent because they're both about women who are identified with their circumstances, and they both come into contact with Jesus, both likely feeling lots and lots of shame, both living in the confines of their culture, both having experienced deep and painful betrayal of some kind, but then God. But Jesus, he enters in, as the perfect human embodiment of God. He enters into the pain of both of these women, removing their shame, not by ignoring their pain, but by naming it. I mean, the woman at the well leaves and she goes and she tells all the people who were shaming her and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. 
He names it, but then he holds us. He enters into us, into it with us, and he sets us free from it. So when we read the Bible, we not only read the Bible in the context in which it was written, but it's also good to read it in the context of actually where it's placed. And so if we're going to agree with the 95.9% of manuscripts that say that this is exactly where it should be, then we look at the following verse in verse 12, and it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, shame tries its very best to keep us in the dark. But Jesus, but God, came not only to bring light into our darkness, but to give us the light of life to live into. Shame tries to bind our identity to the dark places we've been, to the dark things that are within us, and the light of Jesus comes into us and shines a light on us and not only takes away our sin, but convinces us that we are beloved. And so the question is, do we believe, and where do we need help in our unbelief? I'm going to ask the band to come back up here. And now we're going to just take a few moments to respond and reflect. Um, we have stations around the room, and at those stations are the Lord's Supper, the bread, and the cup. There's no greater reminder of God's presence with us in all the things than the bread and the cup. And so that's why we practice it every week. I'm going to read the passage over one more time, and I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and listen as I read it. And I wonder if you take some time to reflect, not only where do you find yourself in the story, but where do you find your shame? Where is your struggle? And where do you need Jesus to meet you in those places? Where do you need him to meet you in your shame, to be with you in your pain? Because he wants to. And so as we sing and we pray, let's take time to reflect on that and respond. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stopped, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin.